The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hit it, Alfred. Thieves, look out. Thugs, beware. Killers, watch out. Wrongdoers, don't dare. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode four of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We are the ever-vigilant protectors of your nostalgia from the 90s comic book boom, as presented through the pages of Wizard Magazine, dedicated to the idea that non-podcast listeners are a superstitious and cowardly lot. I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. And here we are again, back in the Batcave, for an audio adventure that's sure to strike fear in the hearts of those who dare to leave their back issues in a damp, unfinished basement. Boy, do we have a doozy of a show for you today. Not to oversell it, but issue four feels like the first step in the right direction for Wizard, where they had finally settled into a groove with a lineup of regular features to delight the growing number of comic book fans who were picking up their publication. There was even a full-fledged letter section. So, let's open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. Our first letter is from Michael Velt from Findlay, Ohio. I wonder if Michael will ever listen to this. Maybe we could find him on social media and shout him out. Dear Wizard, I have some questions for you to answer. I bought an issue of Wizard Number 1 and thought the questions people sent were interesting and your answers were great. I have some questions of my own and I'd like to hear what you think. 1. Since comic companies have been using computer art, new heroes have been created. The art style is sometimes different and more modern. The popularity of comics has increased. Could there be another age of comics? Or could we be living in one now? Question number two. Is there going to be an X-Men movie, a sequel to Punisher, and are the Marvel and DC cartoons going to be shown again? Question number three. I am also curious to know, is McGann and Nightcrawler going to end up together? And who is more powerful, the Hulk or Drax the Destroyer? Question number four. 
Is there a silver skateboarder? Question number five. Will comic companies have art contests? Question number six. Will there be any fool killer ghost rider team-ups? Question number seven. Last but not least, does Marvel and DC ever get ideas from each other, such as War of the Gods and Infinity Gauntlet, or The Shield and Captain America? That was written by Michael Velt from Findlay, Ohio. And here's what Wizard responded. Thanks for writing, Mike. I can't remember seeing so many questions in the same place before, but here goes. One, has anyone else thought of this? It's true that a large change has occurred in comics lately, starting around the late 1980s. Stories have become darker, characters more violent. A greater emphasis has been put on the artwork than ever before, and it seems an entirely new generation of artists and writers have found fame. If this is a new age, only time will tell. So that first question, is there going to be a new age? Obviously, this was almost 30 years ago that this came out. Did they give a name to the 90s yet? Because I feel like it has to be like the chromium age. It has to be something to do with gimmick covers. I don't know what the 90s era of comics was actually called. I'm curious. Yeah. So we're going to have to do a little research on that. Then second question, an X-Men movie? Yes. Finally, this mutant motion picture is in production, produced by none other than James Cameron Aliens and Terminator. We sincerely hope there'll be no Punisher sequel. Even though the old Marvel and DC cartoons were jewels, they'll probably never be seen again. But who knows? That is a loaded paragraph. <laughs> so first of all, not only was James Cameron attached to a Spider-Man movie, he was also attached to an X-Men movie? I mean, I think they just thought, whatever it's gonna be, let it be James Cameron, please. It's like, you know, nowadays, oh... J.J. Abrams. Oh, he did Star Trek. He did Star Wars. Oh, let's attach him to Superman. Yeah, J.J. Abrams. <laughs> I got your answer on the ages for the 90s, by the way. Oh, okay. In 93, they called it the Dark Age of Comics because Superman died. Venom got his own series. Batman's back got broken. But from 84 to 91 was the Copper Age of Comics. Was that just because you could rub two pennies together after you bought all your month's comics? Exactly. <laughs> That's when prices started going up. That's so interesting that James Cameron was attached to an X-Men movie at that point, and yes, it, it only took nine more years that we eventually got the X-Men movie. It actually, when we finally arrived to issue seven, there was quite an update that talks about an X-Men movie as it was conceived at the time, so we'll look forward to that. And have you seen the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, Michael? Have I seen it. I own it. <laughs> Me <about>. too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That funhouse scene it has some cool action in it. You know, I, I don't hate it. I yeah. mean, and it's got Lewis Gossett Jr. in it. How, how can you not like it? I think everybody hates it literally because there's no skull on his chest. That's I the only that's reason. The, the major gripe about it is there's no skull in the chest. And seeing Dolph Blunder with black hair, but then, you know, we saw Thomas Jane with black hair years later, and no one batted an eye about that. But yeah, I think it was because there was no skull in the chest really turned people off and it was like this isn't punisher he doesn't have a skull although we're gonna talk a little bit later in the episode about another film that was very faithful to the comics and still nobody liked it we are a finicky <laughs> group of people comic book i'm looking fans. forward to it i'm eager to have this conversation then to close that out wizards believe that the marvel and dc 
cartoons will never be seen again. Well, obviously, thanks to Disney Plus. Wow. Yeah. We got all those Marvel cartoons, except for surprisingly, and I, they must be owned by like Universal or somebody like who owns the Hulk animated series from the 90s. Also, the Fantastic Four from that Marvel Action Hour, because they are not on Disney Plus. I mean, it's a little confusing right now because all of a sudden the rights to the Hulk just reverted back to Marvel. So we may be seen. Oh, yeah, the Hulk and Namor got reverted back to Marvel. So now they have full rights to those characters to make solo films. So we might see that Hulk animated series on Disney+. Plus. In regards to the Fantastic Four one, I've seen bits and pieces on YouTube. I don't know who owns it or where it is at this point. Maybe they had to, like, digitize it or something like that. They may also be holding it back until right. a new Fantastic Four movie comes out. That you was my know. thought. Like, when She-Hulk comes out, maybe we'll see the Hulk cartoon because she was a big part of that 90s series. Yeah. And then just to close it out here with this third question, speaking of the Hulk, read Excalibur 43 to see Nightcrawler and Captain Britain fight it out over Megan. And we don't know if Drax is stronger than the Hulk, but since Hulk's got Dr. Bruce Branner's mind and Drax's brain is a pea, the Hulk could probably thrash him easily. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I wasn't a huge Guardians of the Galaxy fan in the 90s, and I didn't know that character even existed until the movie came out because it was just, it was a very obscure thing and it would come and it go and you know how marvel books go that they run them for a little while and they dump them and i look at the drax that we see on the movies now and i could see it being one of those unstoppable forces where it won't stop fighting mm-hmm. but i can't see it defeating the hulk right it's what he always does in the movies is he goes for it and he gets destroyed but he always keeps getting back up yeah you're just a big buff guy even if you are an alien exactly as a joke for question number four is there a silver skateboarder yes his name is garib seamus <laughs> <laughs> and number five who knows dc put out new talent showcase a few years back which featured amateur work but we haven't heard about anything in the future and number six the cool idea as to whether or not there'd be a fool killer or ghost rider team up now michael i don't want to get too deep into this but do you know about fool killer i know what fool killer is i had the funko pop too really oh yeah oh yeah now which version is it because here is my confusion because there's like three different fool killers and there was one in the original marvel series of one trading cards this rookie card for fool killer who's this guy in like a gimp mask and he's holding up a gun i never saw him but I was just digging through some quarter bins the other day, and I got a copy of Fool Killer Number 1. It's the one written by Steve Gerber, and it's like a real serious like psychological study of this guy who's Fool Killer. So what does your Fool Killer Funko Pop look like? Because this guy's dressed like one of the Three Musketeers or the Scarlet Pimpernel or something. So Funko Pops had released uh, a line of Deadpools that were all different colors. There was a blue one that was Fool Killer. There was a green one that was Solo. And then there was a couple other ones. But I had all of those different ones. And I remember there was a time, it might have been in the early 2000s or even in the late, late 90s, where Deadpool was these different personas. And uh, one of them was the Fool Killer character. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so it wasn't like the classic versions no, or no, previous no. versions. It was a Deadpool. Okay, got it. Wow, that's interesting, though, because I, I see that 
book mentioned actually in, in future issues of Wizard as well. And like, people really liked this book because it was maybe more serious. So they're like, oh yeah, Marvel's finally getting into Watchmen territory or something. And it's the final question. Does Marvel and DC ever get ideas from each other, such as War of the Gods and Infinity Gauntlet or The Shield and Captain America? And they respond, nah, you got to realize that Marvel and DC put out nearly a hundred books each month. Some of them sooner or later are going to look the same. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's been tons and tons of looks online where they like compare Thanos to Darkseid and all different, you know, yeah. characters. Yeah, Swamp know. Thing and Man Thing came out within a few weeks of each other. You right, know. it happens. All right, folks, let's close up the mailbag and let's dive right in to the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. In December 1991, we've got some real hits. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which was probably one of the first ones that I saw in theater. And I remembered actually liking that movie a lot. And I'm not a huge Star Trek person. Yeah, me too. I actually, I saw that in a double feature with the Christian Slater movie Cuffs. And I have no idea why those two movies were paired together. But I saw it with my dad and I really enjoyed it as well. It's one of my favorites. Four hours of your life you might not get back. (laughs) And that one came out on December 5th. Now the next two movies i have a lot to talk about because they're two movies that i have very good memories of the first one is hook which came out on december 11th 1991 and uh, when i was a kid we used to go up to canada every year because my aunt and uncle live up in montreal and we'd go up there for the holidays and i remember one night the adults all went to go see another movie that came out that same month, which was JFK. And the kids all went to see Hook. And I remember the movies were parallel in length almost because they were both really, really long. And all of the kids fell asleep during the middle of Hook. And then a few weeks later, my friends like, oh, did you see Hook? It was great. I'm like, yeah, I only saw maybe about an hour of it. I fell asleep. So I had to wait <laughs> like six months till it came out on VHS to rewatch it so I could talk about it with my friends. Then, uh, you know, I'll talk about JFK. Then I'm going to jump back to one more real quick. So being a, a film student in college and, and in graduate school, JFK was one of my favorite films for a while in, in like the early 2000s and in the, in the late 90s because I was a big Oliver Stone fan. And that movie is a terrific film history both suspense and everything and who doesn't like kevin cosner that's all all i gotta say about that now the last movie is another real classic and i love this movie the last boy scout with bruce willis and damon wayans and it was kind of funny because there was a time period where a lot of movies came out with the last so bruce willis did the last boy scout he did The Last Man Standing. Schwarzenegger did The Last Action Hero. It was a big last of things. And they called it The Last Boy Scout, but he was such not a Boy Scout in this movie. But it was just such a great buddy cop sort of movie, and I love that movie to death. It cracks me up. It's got football in it. It's got Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans being hilarious. It's a great film. Now, to dive into music... I went to college in New Jersey, right? I live in Long Island, but I went to college in New Jersey. So this first album that I'm going to talk about, or this first band, growing up in New Jersey for four years in college, I've heard this album and many others like it a gazillion times. Bon Jovi's Hard and Hot. 
which came out on December 2nd. And for all my New Jersey friends that are listening to us, I'm sure you're bumping it right now. You're going to pause the podcast, pop on your MP3 player or your phone or whatever, and listen to some Bon Jovi just because I'm mentioning it because it would (laughs) inevitably, at every party or every event, we heard some sort of Bon Jovi song at one point or another. Yeah, and I gotta tell you, so my mom's side of the family is all from New Jersey. That's like a very special place for me. It, people give it a lot of crap, but I don't know why, cause I love Jersey. And yeah, Bon Jovi for sure. I actually was at RetroCon and I was participating in their karaoke contest. And so I did, you give love a bad name is my <laughs> alter ego Mel Zorro. So that was a lot of fun. I got a runner-up prize, which was a case of Ecto Cooler. I was just fine with that. (laughs) That's pretty fantastic. I'm not going to lie. All right. Well, now that we've caught you up on the pop culture of the time, we're going to take a look at the table of contents. Just give you an overview of the magazine here. Now, issue four of Wizard is sporting a Batman cover by none other than Bart Sears. And for those who don't know that name directly... Bart Sears was pretty big in the 90s. He was actually, at the time, the main artist on Justice League International, which was kind of a comedy take on the Justice League in a lot of ways. It was definitely like a bunch of superheroes who were mismatched and, you know, Guy Gardner's in the mix. And like, Well, let me think here. So did it change? Because at the time, it, they were calling it Justice League Europe, but I think it actually became Justice League International later on or they changed the title to freshen it up i do think originally it was justice league europe but if you look for it in trades now it's all under justice league international and it was kind of like a campy silly almost like an elseworlds or an earth 2 kind of a justice league where you got batman you've got booster gold you've got Blue Beetle. Power Girl. Power Girl. I think Metamorpho. <laughs> Metamorpho and like Black Canary were the team. And I've read a few issues of it. I wanted to dive into it further, but it just, it was one of those things where I just have so many books that I'm backlogged on that I didn't ever really dove deep into it. But I always liked the covers and, and the art was kind of cool and I do remember it. Now, Bart later on actually started getting his own feature in Wizard Magazine, which was called Brutes and Babes, where he gave art lessons on how to draw for those who were aspiring comic book artists but the way he kind of got into that was that they started after this issue asking him to draw multiple covers so i mean there are a lot of bart sears covers especially in the early days of wizard and Mm -hmm. actually in the anniversary issues and they actually reveal that there were five or six other covers that he submitted that were never actually used he Hmm. did like two different she hulk covers cool dark hawk cover and a bunch of others but he actually has a distinction for me that means even more he was the artist for the boxes of cops and crooks action figures in the 80s. So if you remember those boxes, yeah, they were like a shiny silver, and then the characters were in real big graphics on the side of the bubble. And so he was the one who actually drew up all that art, which I always felt was a big selling point. You know, it always caught my eye at Toys R Us. Oh, I remember these. Oh my God. Wow. I remember these. I think I had a, yeah, I had a couple of these. That's funny. Wow. I forgot all about these. It's scary. The things you remember, man, it's, it blows. (laughs) That's my job. This is what I do. But the last thing I knew him for, 
for in comics was actually about halfway through the original run of the Exo Manowar series for Valiant. So we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show as well. He has an interview called Pursuing Justice in a Dark Night, which is kind of weird, I guess, because Justice League. And he was also drawing a few Batman uh, stories at the time as well, they were saying. So probably a few that you have, Michael, I'd imagine. Yeah, there's probably a few. So I wanted to talk about this cover for a minute. Yeah. There's certain things I like and dislike about it. I love the way the cape moves. I don't like the way his chest kind of like shoots it. Like he's got these huge lats on the side. I'm like, I, <laughs> they don't look right. And and his pose almost looks like he's like doing flash dance or like striking a pose or like doing disco. Yeah, but it's I'm, very Broadway. I'm, it's like, hey! <laughs> it, 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 it is very Broadway. But, you know, overall, I do like the color and, and the texture and, and the shading of it is really, really nice. And I have an affinity for like the really long ears from the 90s. I always thought that was kind of cool. They don't do that anymore. But mostly it's a cool cover. And I also, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first DC cover for which... Yeah. I mean, they, they were all Marvel for the first three. Yeah. Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and Wolverine. And I don't know what the relationship was with DC, why they didn't uh, get into allowing... And that's the other thing, too. I've always wondered, like, how did they get the rights to allow the artists to draw? Or were just both publishers saying any publicity is good publicity, even from a magazine nobody's heard of yet? You know? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Something was going on there, but uh they do mention, finally, it says about our cover, Batman agreed to hold still long enough between takes from the movie Batman 2, Batman Returns, for us to snag him for our cover, if we could only have convinced him to wear the hat, though. <laughs> so, anyway, and then the next article they mention is, Mutants aren't everything. We continue our talk with John Byrne on the X-Men and other prospects, so this is actually nothing major we need to touch on here. We got into it pretty in-depth with Jeff on the last episode, mm-hmm. but the few highlights that John Byrne mentions here, one of the books he wants to most be remembered for is OMAC. This was a, a, a relaunch he did of this OMAC character, and he just said, nobody cared, and I think it's some of my best work. Do you know about OMAC? I do. Oh, really? No, I've, I've never read them. So I can tell you what I know, which is more modern era. So there's a, there's two different versions of OMAC. There's OMAC that's like a hulkish giant type character, and he's kind of a superhero, but he's almost kind of like a wrecking machine as well. And it's, it's, it is kind of silly, but it also can be kind of serious at times. And in the late 2000s, there was a story with DC called Infinite Crisis. And right before that, Batman started what's called the OMAC project and um, this is where an an idea from brother i comes from and he creates basically like androids and things that are supposed to protect the earth but they're also monitoring everybody and then they all go crazy and then uh, there's a story arc for an organization called checkmate and they're trying to take down the omax and at after Infinite Crisis, there's only one OMAC left, and he gets a short-lived series, uh, I think in the beginning of like the New 52, something like that. I read maybe the first issue. It was, wasn't was my thing, kind of a throwaway kind of a character. He kind of f- felt to me like the Hulk meets Savage Dragon 
kind of yeah he's, a, he's got the mohawk going yeah. right <laughs> it's kind of like an amalgam of those two characters and i was gonna say gladiator from x-men yeah a little bit like gladiator too yeah it's almost like a, a mixture of those three characters yeah but burn like i said he loved it nobody else did but he basically mentions about doing the x books i've been telling people the best thing about doing the x books is the ton of cash that it automatically comes with it he laughs that subsidizes the lesser projects it subsidizes she hulk for me i can now do she-Hulk and not have to worry about whether She-Hulk will pay my mortgage, which isn't very likely because the X-Men are going to pay my mortgage. And the sad (laughs) part is he only wrote it for a few issues and then quit because he had the same problem with Jim Lee that Chris Claremont did, unfortunately, as we discussed last episode. So, sorry. Hope you got that mortgage paid off quickly. But that was it's a fun follow-up. He talks about Next-Men and Namor and a couple other projects that he's worked on, which uh, we will hear more about down the road. Additionally, it was a Dark and Stormy Night, which is an interview with Denny O'Neill, the world's greatest detective comics editor. We're going to discuss in a little bit more length here shortly, X-Forcing the Issue, which was an interview with Fabian Nicisa? Is how I've always said it. How do you say it, Michael? This I feel like every episode we're like, wait, now we have to actually say these names out loud. <laughs> Yeah, I probably would have said it the same way you did. I just probably butchered it even worse. So I'm going to go with what you went with there. <laughs> yeah, to me, he was just the ubiquitous writer of X-Men comics. You know, it was like Scott Lodell or Fabian Nicieza were like the names I was always seeing in the 90s, like mm-hmm. way into the late 90s. And I know he also wrote New Warriors as well as X-Force. And he also surprisingly wrote ALF and the Barbie comic for Marvel. And I actually had several issues of the ALF comic. I got a kick out of that. It was <laughs> it was a fun time in comics, I gotta say. I definitely did not have the ALF comic. I did no? watch the show obsessively. I loved the show, but I never picked up the comic. No, I went straight down the line. It was either Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America and X-Men. Those were like the way I went most of the time. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, we're definitely going to hear more from him as the decade goes on, for sure, because yeah. nowadays he's mostly known as the co-creator of Deadpool. So that's where he kind of grabs his claim to fame, shares it with Rob Liefeld. Yeah. The next one is a feature that is actually not mentioned in the table of contents, which I was really surprised. I was like, huh, they must have just stuck it in at the last minute. But there is the first mention and the first feature, kind of a preview of the launch of Valiant Comics. So this is a big deal because as longtime readers of Wizard know, Valiant becomes a very, very prominent part of the magazine, almost to the point where I was like, does Jim Shooter have some pictures of Garib Seamus? Because they were getting so much ink and so much press. So, you know, once we continue on, we may have to add Valiant to the Rob and Todd's hype tally once Todd kind of disappears for a minute. (laughs) I wonder if it was also maybe that DC and Marvel weren't allowing them to run certain features where Valiant would probably give them more rights to say, yeah, sure, go crazy, promote our books, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And actually, for those who don't know, because Valiant has had a resurgence, you know, we actually are getting a Vin Diesel bloodshot movie, which was a Valiant comic, and they a few years back, they relaunched the Valiant line. But when they first were launching here, Jim Shooter, the former editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, and a prominent writer at DC in his younger days, 
actually started this new company. And originally, they were producing Nintendo and World Wrestling Federation comics. That was their cash cow. But they got to the point where they said, well, why don't we get the rights to some old defunct characters from Gold Key comics, like Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom, or Turok, Son of Stone, Magnus, Robot Fighter. And then what they did was they updated them with former Marvel artists and writers, people like Bob Layton and Barry Windsor Smith and Steve Englehart and Jim Shooter himself. Actually, if you read interviews with Jim Shooter, he's kind of like, I ended up doing kind of half the work for everybody, ultimately, some months. But they also started creating their own original ideas. So they had Harbinger, which was kind of their version of X-Men and Gen 13 before Gen 13 existed. There was Ray or Rai. I always just said Ray, R-A-I. I think I, th- I thought it was Ray also. So here's the funny thing about Harbinger, right? Recently, I mean, there would have been actually CW just finished running the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And in that story from the 80s, one of the main characters is a character called the Harbinger. And I always found it weird that Valiant was able to take that name of Harbinger, which DC used for a character, and made it into an entire book. I didn't understand how that was possible. I never picked up the book. I've looked at the covers a bunch of times and stuff like that, but I've not really dove deep. The only Valiant book that I've ever had any interest in is a book called Faith. Oh, yeah, I've read that. That's a great comic. It's very popular. Yeah, yeah I like Faith a lot. I don't read it all the time, but every once in a while I pick it up, and it's cool. It's interesting. It's very different. But it's a spinoff from Harbinger. Yeah, it's a spinoff. Yeah, it you have the character that. called Zephyr, but her real name is Faith, and so then she got her own book in this modern age and it's really pretty great yeah so we'll we'll get into a little bit more about valiant down the line like i say they are not a flash in the pan during this time then there is andy mangles hollywood heroes so this is the first appearance of that column we have a long discussion based on captain america the movie coming up defining the dark knight why has batman lasted 50 years the Wizard Comic Watch, toying around, more reviews from GamePro Magazine, picks for the Wizard's Hat, Wizard's Top Ten, and of course, the Comic Book Price Guide, and Don't You Fret. We also have a trading card section, that's right, because previewed in this issue, we're going to be talking about DC's Cosmic Cards. Oh, wow. Now it's time to remind you that this week, once again... Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, is sponsored by minifiguresmarket.com. Have you ever danced with the devil of the pale moonlight? Why not Mambo with minifiguresmarket.com in the evening shade? Because the custom-printed Lego minifigure selection will put a joker smile on the face of even the most serious of Gotham's caped crusaders. You'll find Batman in his green or white lantern getup, a classic joker as the clown prince of crime, or the Academy Award-nominated Joaquin Phoenix style, and even old-school Nightwing in his high-collar, low-cut leisure suit look. So head on over to minifiguresmarket.com today and find your favorite pop culture characters represented in Lego minifigure style and ready to display. So with Batman being on the cover, this issue is very Batman-centric, and there's two very 
huge articles about Batman, the history, the idea behind Batman, the story of it. Let's dive into it and check it out. All right. So one of the things here in this article, which is an interview with Denny O'Neill, again, if you don't know Denny O'Neill, I don't know if you're really a Batman fan. He's a writer. He's an editor. I mean, he's just this creative force of Batman's history that really brought the character back to his roots after the goofy 50s and the 60s, the series going on and people are not taking him seriously. And then in the 70s, you know, Denny O'Neill teams with Neil Adams and wow, Batman gets awesome again. Yeah. He's a real detective. He's hard-hitting, gritty stories. Not as gritty as, you know, Frank Miller, but still pretty serious stories going on there. And so one of the things that I think is interesting, Denny O'Neill certainly, outside of anybody, has a great handle on the Batman character, but he mentions that that character is a grim, dark, somewhat obsessed man driven to fight crime by the memory of his parents' murder. But is an obsession a form of psychosis? O'Neill argues that Bruce Wayne isn't crazy because he recognizes his obsession and uses it for pro-social purposes. In our sort of psychological picture of Batman, we posit that he knows that he has an obsession. He's aware of it, but he chooses not to fight the obsession because he's an existential man. We all need something to give meaning to our life. At least it's a very socially useful obsession to have. <laughs> so has that defined your vision of Batman? Do you see him as an obsessed individual? I would say the Grant Morrison version is very obsessed. The Tom King, who just finished his run, is very obsessed. There are times when Scott Snyder's version is very obsessed. He's an obsessed individual, but it's it's a different kind of obsession than people would normally classify things. Because he's, he's got to be so meticulous about things that, to him, it's not an obsession. To him, it's it's just the way things are supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, for us, as outside people that aren't in his shoes would think of it as an obsession. But I think for Batman, he doesn't think it's an obsession. I think it's just what he's supposed to do. The article goes on to say that some fans argue that we haven't seen enough of Bruce Wayne in the past few years, that the concentration on Batman's obsession has led to the neglect of his uncostumed life. After all, they say he was Bruce Wayne for 20 years before he became Batman. To some extent, O'Neill rejects that argument. He wasn't Bruce Wayne for 20 years before he was Batman. He became Batman at age 8. So I thought that was a really interesting take by Denny O'Neill on that. It's like, no, 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 no. He became Batman when his parents were murdered, and he was no longer Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne, I think they've explored this in many stories, is the mask now. Oh, yeah. Bruce I Wayne mean, is just the public face. That's very true, I think. In many iterations, even reboots or whatever, it's been established now that Bruce Wayne is the mask, and Batman is actually who he is. And whether it happened when his parents were killed or when he fell into the cave and found the bats, at some point or other, that's when he became Batman and Bruce Wayne sort of went away or became something else. I think that's probably true. And you got to think of it this way. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but anybody who deals with that sort of trauma at that kind of age needs to develop some sort of coping mechanism. And for eight-year-old or, you know, 10-year-old, old Bruce Wayne, depending on who's writing it, the Batman character or that figure 
is the thing that protected him and helped became his coping mechanism. Yeah, what I find really interesting is that for me, the idea, you know, people always kind of get on the case of, well, he has this ward and it's kind of weird that he took Dick Grayson in, this little boy that lives with him and trades him, puts him in dangerous situations. But, you know, in a lot of the stories that you read, he's like, no, no, I gave Dick a way to cope. I was giving him that way to focus his energy, but then at the same time, Dick had a little bit of an advantage. I mean, Bruce always had Alfred, but Dick had Alfred and Bruce. And so I feel like he somehow came out much better adjusted than Bruce did ultimately, because it seems like Dick does want to have a life. You know, and Bruce, not so much. You know, he's like, I'm pretty much Batman all the time. It's what I think of. It's what I do. And Dick is like, well, this is what I was trained to do. So it's kind of the family business. But I also want to love. I want to have all these other things in my life. I've always found that an interesting distinction between the two who had almost identical situations in their lives. So I I have a lot of feelings towards the taking of wards of from Batman and he's had so many at this point that you look at it like how could no one figure out that this guy's Batman he's got 10 different kids at different points that have lived with him and he's got three adopted sons at this point it seems super far-fetched it's like come on how do you not know if you want to break it down really really detailed the thing about Dick is he gets to see how Bruce is as Batman and can learn do i want to be this way do i want to be this miserable and psychotic at times or do i want to have a life where bruce had nothing to base it off of he just created himself and all alfred could do is just kind of like keep him from going over the deep end and becoming you know a psychopath and becoming like the joker or other villains Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like your parents, an alcoholic, you grow up, I'm never touching liquor. I'm just not doing it. Yeah, exactly. So in the defining the Dark Knight, where they kind of get into just the general history, they're talking all about the real touchstones of the Batman legacy in terms of stories and the creative teams that made a difference. You know, they talk about the grim and gritty angle that Frank Miller added to the character has been an influence on the comic book art form that is still being felt today. The grittiness made Batman more realistic and believable as our society has become more violent and tragic. In fact, this grittiness has been so successful and well-received on Batman that DC has rushed to blindly retrofit grittiness to other DC characters, even ones for whom grittiness is totally inappropriate and destructive to the history and personality of the character, such as Hal Jordan. Uh, They talk more about, like, Alan Moore with the killing joke and exploring the psychological perspective. They get into Grant Morrison and Dave McKean with Arkham Asylum, that that was the most successful hardcover comic of all time. So they kind of mention some of these storylines. I was curious for you, Michael, being such a big fan, because for me, you know, I've come in and out of Batman stories like Nightfall is big for me, but Nightfall is only big for me because I bought the audio drama version so it's like this two cassette radio play of the whole story and I used to listen to that all the time Bane in there and you got Azrael and everybody I've read you know Hush and things like that but I'm just curious for you what are some of the key Batman stories for you whether it's 
from this era or beyond? In no particular order. Long Halloween is definitely a, a big one. I like Long Halloween better than I like Year One and a lot of other stories. I think it's very, very interesting. It's what I've heard the next Batman movie, the Matt Reeves movie, is going to be loosely based on, which is a really great book. If you haven't read it, and that's check Jeff it out. Loeb and Tim Saul, right? Yeah, I really do enjoy Hush a lot. There's a, another book that, for some reason, people don't like it, but I was really bummed that it didn't continue. It was All-Star Batman and Robin. <laughs> Frank Miller, what were you up to? <laughs> Frank Miller and, and Jim Lee. I really loved that story, and people hate it so much that it never got a sequel, and I was bummed by that. Well, there were two moments that I recall that everybody said, we are no longer taking this seriously. So number one is on the MF and Batman, right? right? So <laughs> cussing out Robin. And then also there was a a scene where they had to talk to Green Lantern, so he paints himself all yellow in an entirely yellow room so Green Lantern can't do anything to him. And I think people were just kind of like, ah, that's yeah. ridiculous. That's Silver Age. What are you doing? <laughs> it is a little ridiculous. It is. But honestly, one of my favorite Batman stories, and this is, I think I mentioned this once a long, long time ago. It's not actually a Batman book. It's a, it's, it's a Justice League book called Identity Crisis. Have you ever read it? Oh yeah, yeah. I have the trade. I love that book. And that actually, was the first book that got me back into comics in the early to mid-2000s was that particular trade. Now, why do you consider that a Batman story? Because a lot of people would say, well, it's kind of an elongated man story. It is an elongated man story, but also a lot of it revolves around Batman being a detective and solving the case, and then with Tim Drake's dad getting killed in that book. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens that I feel like, it. to me, it feels in a way, a Batman book. It, people would disagree with me a lot, I think. Those are probably some of my favorite books. For me, you know, in the era that we started reading Batman comics, I have this issue, which is Detective Comics 627. I'm assuming you own this as well, which is celebrating Batman's 600th appearance in Detective Comics. Oh, yeah. They took the original Batman story, and then it was retold in 1969 for the 30th anniversary of Batman, and then it was retold again now in the 90s, and what they did was they had Marv Wolfman and Jim Aparo do a version, and then they had, I guess what I would consider my team when I was picking up the Batman book for however long I was, mainly as it related to Tim Drake and Robin stories, but Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle, mm. that was a team, and Norm Brayfogle's Batman... I, I, this is something I thought would be interesting to talk about, is just kind of the different styles uh, that artists have taken with him. Because I, I feel like, you know, the definitive Batman for our generation is probably the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Batman that was like on the superpowers packaging and pretty much all DC merchandise in the 80s. Which mm -hmm. was like, you know, like the light blue and the gray outfit. And that was, you know, very influential for a lot of us. I think that's what we saw as Batman. I felt like everybody was building off of what Neil Adams had done. So it's oh, like yeah. perfect anatomy, just real sharp lines. And then Norm Brayfogle did this thing where it's almost like Batman is a mythical character, always in shadow. He always feels like his body is being warped or like, 
pulled a weird direction. He had, he had a very interesting style. And like I say, it was always more about the shape than it was, you know, again, making this look like photorealistic or anything. And then I know, you know, Jim Lee with Hush, I feel like that's where Batman got redefined for this modern age. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I'd say so. The black on gray, because that's like where it became, okay, no more of this blue stuff. We're not doing the blue Batman anymore. So the black on gray kind of starts happening a little after he returns from his back being broken. There was a cover that had him in a black cowl the first time, and it was a big deal because it was like, oh, is it a, almost like a metal type of suit for his spine? It was like They were teasing all different things, I remember. And then they only did it for a very short time, then he went back to the blue and gray, and then, like you said, when when Hush happened, they changed it again and gave the, the black and gray aesthetic that has been present ever since. Yeah, and I guess technically, I mean, that was the situation in Batman Year One, right? Yeah, the black and the gray, but I feel like that was just kind of a flash in the pan, right? That wasn't the main thing in the continuity they were going with. It was. It was intended to be a nod to Detective 27. He had the black and the gray with the purple gloves and the purple lining on the inside <laughs> of the cape. Right. I think it was mostly meant to be a nod to that. Yeah, so I mean, there, there are all those looks. So what is your favorite creative team then on Batman? Like, is there a definitive one in your mind where like, well, that's what Batman looks like? I honestly think the person who draws Batman the best, he's a current guy, his name is Jason Fabok. The way he draws Batman, I think is absolutely perfect. He looks like a real guy, but, you know, super strong. That's probably my most, what I think looks the best. There was a book, Shadow of the Bat 35, and... Batman was basically almost all in silhouette other than the emblem and the eyes were lit and and um, it was a really cool cover and that for me for a while was like what I thought Batman looked like. like that was definitive for a long, long time. There's so much to say about Batman, but we got some other segments to move on to. So let's get to Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. So actually, we're not leaving Batman so soon, yet we are getting into the world of Robin. So this is kind of a major upset in Wizard with issue four. We haven't focused really heavily on the top ten listings, but just so you know, the top ten books for everything up to this point have been Marvel books, and they were mostly X-Men books. So it was X-Factor, it was New Mutants, it was Jim Lee's X-Men number one, Uncanny X-Men with Will Sportacio taking over. So it's just nonstop Marvel. And so it says right here in the top 10 listing, Holy broad jump, Batman! That's what was said when the Boy Wonder hurtled over the competition and entered the charts at the number one position. And they're referring to Robin Joker's Wild number one, which was also referred to as Robin 2, but in this case, they, they left off the two. Having five different covers and bonus holograms helped achieve this coveted spot. But it's this new Robin's popularity coupled with that of the murderous Joker that makes this such a hit. The holograms 
hologram covers have people so excited, no unhologram version has become more popular than the others so far. With stepping on and over so many books to reach this spot, the Joker may be the least of his worries as all the other books on the chart set their sights at the boy wonder. Where's Batman when you need him? We have already uh, spoken of our affinity for the original Robin miniseries back in the day as being a, a very important book to both of us, but Robin to the Joker's Wild. What did you think about this particular series? I did not read it. I Honestly, I, I just didn't understand why they'd call it Robin 2. And for me, it was one of those things where it was like, Tim Drake is already Robin 3, and why would we do... It, it, it just didn't make any sense to me, and I would just... I never picked it up, honestly. Never, ever picked it up. Okay, now here's the funny thing. Neither did I. It is so weird, because we are so Tim Drake Robin obsessed, and the second miniseries comes out, and we're not the people contributing to making it number one yeah. on the wizard list. And I don't I don't know what it was for me either, because yes, there was a hologram cover. Now, I may have picked up that first issue, but I definitely did not buy all of it, and I don't have that original issue. Recently, I picked up a few just because I wanted to read the story again, and actually, I had a very interesting interaction in my business life. About three or four years ago, I was working for a company and I was in charge of their catalog because I was their marketing director. And so I was going to a printer and I was just kind of figured out what their plan would be and how they could make it into a real high quality book. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sitting in the office with the head of the company, I look up on his wall and there is just like in this giant frame, this uncut sheet of holograms. And I couldn't quite make them out. So I just stand up while he like took a phone call. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, these are for Robin too. What? what? And so as soon as he gets off the phone, I'm like, do you know these are for comic books? He's like, oh yeah. Oh, we printed up a lot of comic books in the 90s. This was just one of my particular favorites. So it was literally an uncut sheet, you know, one whole row of the Batman one whole row of Robin, one whole row of the Bat Signal, and the Joker. Just, I saw that. My jaw was on the floor. Like, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I met the man who actually printed these <laughs> that were on iconic comic books from my youth. You always have these stories. <laughs> Like, I don't understand how you have these stories. It blows my mind. I, I feel like if you're obsessed enough, the universe puts stuff in your way. <laughs> I guess so. So I'm, I'm looking at these covers right now. The one that I remember is from Robin 2, issue 4, where it was like a bat signal card in the, in the thing. I do remember this cover. I never bought this book, but I do remember this cover. We definitely got to talk Joe about this. I bet you Joe read this book. I feel like he'd be, he would know. When we have him on in a couple episodes, we'll, t- we'll talk to him. He'll know. For sure. And I, I just think it's interesting because this is, you know, up till now, we've been blaming all the gimmicks for the most part on Marvel, right? Like we talked about kind of the weird foray that DC went by putting the Sandman special, adding a glow-in-the-dark cover to that. But now here they are kind of going full force and saying, oh, you want to do it? We're putting a hologram on the cover. And, you know... Marvel does that eventually, too, with the you know some of their X-Men books, what, Fatal Attractions, mm. where Wolverine gets the adamantium pulled out by Magneto. I remember that one having a, a hologram on it. But I think this might have been the first one that I recall, anyway. I mean, it made a big impact back in the it day. Did. I do remember that. I, I, I remember Spider-Man books having holograms on the cover, but I don't know if they were, like, cards. They were just kind of, like, in the center of the cover. There was Right, yeah, I have all those. Yeah, those, those were for annuals for the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, and those are awesome. One of them actually also features a preview of Spider-Man 2099, so I was like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) All right, well, you've heard about the gimmicks. 
Now let's find out if uh, another Robin series was able to make some money. That's right, it's Punisher's Price Guide. Alright, so, the Robin miniseries, the original from 1990, with uh, Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle putting that together, awesome, awesome story, it rocked the industry, it made Tim Drake a major player in comic books to where he even got a sequel miniseries, so the price for this book, as listed in the price guide in 1991, was $5, so the original cover price, $1, so it's up by 4 Again, Tim Drake really has kind of hung on. His costume, even, has just been so influential. That redesign, you know, Dick Grayson was in Batman the Animated Series, but he had the Tim Drake costume, you know, and so on and so forth. Every version, even Chris O'Donnell. It was one of those things where, like, they couldn't go with the original Dick Grayson look where he's wearing tights like they did in the 60s. It almost makes sense that in the 90s, the Tim Drake costume should have been the original suit. And I, I get that, why they did that with Dick Grayson as it, which is... Yeah, even in, like, the Teen Titans cartoons, everything. It's all Dick Grayson in Tim Drake's outfit. When is Tim going to get his due? Come on. So you would imagine, then, that being such an iconic character, this miniseries would really go up in value. But this is what I found interesting, is that in 2020, on eBay, a first print sold for 38 cents. Okay, I was, and that was just in January of 2020. But on average, you know, the book over the last, you know, couple months has been selling for about two dollars. Really? Yeah, it's very, it's very strange because you would think again, this this miniseries is so popular. But in my research, I was really surprised that a non-graded second printing sold for sixty-eight dollars. This was just in November of 2019. It was only worth two twenty-five back in 1991. So I was trying to figure out, like, oh, I didn't even know there was a second printing, and what is the difference? There's actually even a third printing. So the first print just says, free poster inside, and that's it. Now, the second print has a white starburst that says, the adventure begins, because I'm assuming no poster this time around. But the third printing then has a black starburst with the Roman numeral three also in the corner box, and it's, it says the adventure begins as well. But this is so odd that it seems to be the rare occasion in the 90s, where the second print was not sought after at the time of its release. Because they're saying it's only worth 225 but this was like the era where everybody was saying, oh, second printings, you got to have it. Now, maybe it's because the cover didn't change that much. They didn't get a whole different look and artist to put it together. But the fact that it could go for $68 now, that's pretty impressive. There's a 9.8 graded on eBay listed for $2,500 for the second printing. Yeah, like, was it really that rare? Like, that that's amazing. I don't know. That is pretty weird. Like, I've never seen it. Like, a second printing usually is definitely, I mean, I've seen a couple of second printings where there was, um, where Green Lantern Rebirth, when he came back from the dead when he wasn't Spectre anymore, the second printing of that initial cover they did in black and white. And that one is more valuable than the original cover, which is in color. But I've never seen it like this. Not that much more. That's crazy. 
Yeah, so I mean, if you've got that, if you just happen to be a little bit late to the party and you got the second printing, congratulations, you might be able to put your kids through college, at least a semester. <laughs> I gotta look at my basement now, oh my god. Yeah, and so I think just based on that, Robin, the miniseries, issue one, second printing, you are a Firestar. Now, folks, we are going to enter Heroes in Motion. We're going to discuss the cult classic from 1990, Captain America. Now, this has got to be a big movie for you, Michael, because as you professed, Captain America was one of your main characters that you were reading and loving in your early days of comics. So I rewatched this movie today, which you can actually find it on YouTube for free. (laughs) It's an hour and 37 minutes. It's a little slow in the beginning, but it, I really kind of enjoyed it. it. It has, like, the bones of what could have been a great movie. And as a kid, I, I had a visual in my head of this and that other version of Captain America where he had the clear shield and that cheesy yeah, helmet. Yeah, the 70s TV movies yeah, yeah with Red Brown. <laughs> so, so this was kind of, like, in my head. I, I forgot that they were two different things, and then I watched this today – and I really like this movie. Like, there are certain things about it that I'm like, man, if they had more money, this could have been a really terrific movie. And a few questions about it and a few things I want to talk about. So they changed a few things about Steve Rogers, but I don't know if they changed it then or comics have changed it now. So, like, the movie starts off where he lives in California, and he's not from Brooklyn. And I always thought he was from Brooklyn. Did they just make that for the movie? That's definitely just based on budget and where they could afford to film. Right. That's 100% (laughs) what I thought, too. And the other thing is, before they give him the super soldier serum, he's already the perfect, you know, soldier, he's a good person, whatever. I thought he was supposed to be this scrawny little nothing. I get. I think, again, it was they couldn't make somebody look puny and then make him look like a hero. Right. I mean, instead, they gave him polio, so he had a limp. Right. And that was kind of what they said was, well, you know, he didn't really qualify, again, the way they had to shoot around the budget. <laughs> yeah. But the costume, I thought, looked really good. I liked the shield. I wish Captain America did more. Other than doing some pretty amazing backflips, he doesn't really hit anybody too hard, and he gets hit by a lot of henchmen and gets hurt pretty easily, which I felt was a strange thing. A couple of things that I did notice right off the bat, there is a lot of gunfire in that movie. From the from the word go in the very beginning, Captain America even gets shot and has like bullet holes in him in the very beginning of the movie too and i thought that was pretty interesting also i don't know if you thought about this or not the the scientist who gives him the the serum in this movie was a woman and that was pretty 
surprising that they would change that back then. Like, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting that they did that and they made that yeah, decision. Yeah, we're, we're used to having Dr. Erskine, you know, this German scientist who defected or whatever. And then, yeah, instead we get Dr. Vaselli. And that is the other strange thing is that in this story, the Red Skull is not a German Nazi Superman. For some reason, he is Italian. Yeah. And I think, again, they must have just had shooting locations in Italy. So they just decided to make everything focused around Italy instead of Germany. And so that that was kind of an interesting choice as well. Now, here's the thing that, you know, the reality of this film is that, yes, it has a very bad reputation. A lot of people put it up there with the Dolph Lundgren Punisher that was mentioned with the Roger Corman unreleased Fantastic Four film and it's considered like this terrible movie and can you believe they tried to make it and yes by comparison to the MCU Captain America it's nowhere near it but it also had nowhere near the budget to do what it needed to do and the director his name is Albert Pune and he's also somebody who has a terrible reputation (laughs) in Hollywood he's a working director but people always come to him like oh he directed Jean-Claude Van Damme and Cyborg which was originally a sequel to the live action Masters of the Universe film which had its own budget problems and production issues there's a whole series of films called Nemesis that are like these direct-to-video alien you know action films and he directs those speaking of aliens he directed the mystery science theater 3000 classic alien from la starring kathy ireland (laughs) but he's this guy he is from hawaii he came you know over to the mainland had these dreams of making movies and all he could get were these jobs directing canon films or in this case 21st century which was you know an offshoot ultimately of canon films so these guys who are notorious for being cheap having no budget and not caring about the source material and i actually have a a copy of comic scene from uh this era it's all it's august of 1990 And this is when the Captain America movie was supposed to be coming out, and then it didn't. (laughs) So they talk to Albert Pune all about it, and he's, you know, talking about it's like, Pune calls Captain America an incredibly faithful translation of the comic book, and says its story transcends the genre. But he talks about how he literally was a fan of Captain America, so he wanted to make the best movie he could. As Michael and I have researched, we found out that there were days when they literally were shooting with no film in the camera because they couldn't afford to buy the film to make the movie so on and so forth it was just one of those things where the movie he made under the restrictions he had is i think an actually decent film i mean it doesn't look bad the acting's not terrible the people are doing their best they're taking it seriously and ultimately like you said michael that costume is right off the comic page it's literally spot on Yeah, if you ever wanted a representation of a comic book character, there it is. And and you know what's funny about that? I remember Captain America, the first Avenger, and I hated Chris Evans' Captain America suit in that movie because it it didn't look like what I was visualizing would look like Captain America. This movie, that character, that's what I would, as a kid, thought of Captain America looked like. 
They even show ab definition in it. Like you could believe this guy was Captain America, and I really, really liked that. Like you said, I love the shield work that they do in this in terms of like the stunts they do using the shield. Especially there's that moment in the final scene where he's like rolling and using it as a literal, you know, shield as he's rolling out of the way. Like there's some really cool choreography, and so I just feel like the beginning and the end of the film are the best parts. You know, it's like that's where you get Captain America action. Again, Albert Pune said, you know, we just, we couldn't afford to film our action scenes. And so Albert Pune, you know, he's had to live with this, that people said, you're a terrible filmmaker, you made the worst Captain America movie. And so he actually has gone around for years with his director's cut. Really? And it's been shown at the Alamo Draft House. He sold it from his website. I think that had to stop once they started re-releasing this film because I know they released it on DVD. I have it on Blu-ray. And there was like a three-disc set, ultimately, that he mm. was able to get put out through this other group that included his director's cut and all those things. But based on the comparison I've seen, there's not... I mean, it's not really that much better. Uh, you know, what, what is missing from the film? It would just would have been more time with Steve Rogers being sad. And I don't know if we really needed that. You know what was an interesting thing about this movie was the idea and they only touch on it a little bit and and i wish they would have had more time but they basically say because he failed in taking down red skull during world war ii is the reason why jfk gets killed martin luther king gets killed and a lot of major figures in history get assassinated is because the red skull is kind of spearheading all of these things behind the scenes because Captain America failed. And they only like touch on it for like a split second. And you're like, Oh my God, this is actually a big idea that they're talking about. And they, and it gets lost in the story. And I was, it was a really cool thing. They tried to pull off that they just didn't, it didn't land unless you really paid attention. Yeah, and I just think ultimately this is a film that's worth re-examining. It's not a thrill ride all the way through. I mean, I don't understand. It seems like people hold the Red Brown 70s films in higher esteem than this one just because the suit has rubber ears. Yes, that's ridiculous, but I don't think it's that noticeable, even on the Blu-ray. You know, it's like, yes, there are ears that they attach to the outside of the costume. They're not his real ears, but that was just a costuming issue they could overcome to make the cowl look good on him you know so just like we chose the better choice so we thought and we didn't know that years later people would make fun of us honestly i wouldn't even have noticed that unless i pause it a few times and you can look really really close but it goes by so quick no one could even tell that was not his real ears yeah like i said in the end if you can't appreciate this film for the fact that they gave us the most comics accurate representation of a comic book character ever then you're missing the point it deserves a little bit more praise and a lot less negative attention than it gets there's two little things that i want to mention is that the marvel movies completely missed one is that red skull has a daughter and she's just as evil if not worse at times than he is and she was one of the most interesting parts of this movie if you notice though if you look really close she looks a lot like the oldest daughter from Uncle Buck. They're not the same person. I looked. She's she's some Italian actress, but she looks so much like her. It was weird. And Sharon, who basically is Sharon Carter, in both this movie and in the Marvel movies, Steve Rogers falls in love with the older mother or aunt in the mo- in the Marvel movies, 
and the daughter. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of bad. It's like. <laughs> But now it's time to open up a pack and get into Gambit's deck of cards. Okay, so, just as a little bit of follow-up on the uh, continuing saga of Marvel Universe Series 2 subsets. So, I did ultimately cave and buy the complete set of the X-Force pack-in cards that came with X-Force number 1. So I have completed that subset, because the obsessive of me could not let it go. But, when we were off the air last episode jeff our guest he mentioned to me he's like wait a minute did you also forget that the toy biz x-men figures came with marvel series one trading cards of those characters and they had a blue background and a toy biz logo on the card there's a whole nother subset you have to collect and i was like no no (laughs) so i don't know i'm gonna get that we have to start buying up old x-men toy biz figures how big is your retro room in your house Not big enough, if you ask my wife. (laughs) But moving away from Marvel, finally, this issue has a sneak peek, they're calling it, of Impel's DC Cosmic cards, which are basically the DC counterpart, if you will, to the Marvel Universe trading cards because it was so huge. So what it says here is, in January 1992, Impel will be shipping the long-awaited and highly talked about DC Cosmic cards. There will be 180 cards in this premiere edition set. The Cosmic cards will be divided into seven categories and feature 130 of the top heroes, heroines, and villains from DC Comics, including Superman, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Flash, Lobo, Deathstroke, The Terminator, and Green Lantern. In addition, there will be a limited number of 10 different action holograms. These holograms will be randomly packed in the 12th card DC Cosmic Card Wax Packs. So... We run a whole list of characters there. Did you notice who was missing, Michael? Batman. That is correct. So, the Batman license for trading cards belonged to Tops. Yeah. And so they were they were producing all like the the premium sets and everything else. So I talked about it in a previous episode of this catalog called Advance Comics, mm-hmm. and it was for January 1992, and it has a full page ad that's really awesome for the DC Cosmic cards. But one of the things that they mention in their listing for it is. Despite what was previously reported, Batman will not be appearing in this set. So it looks like everybody thought it was going to be all DC characters and Batman is omitted. Let me jog your memory a little bit. They they came in white packaging. A Superman, they had Green Lantern, they had Wonder Woman, and Deathstroke the Terminator were the different packages that you could get. I may have picked up one or two, because on the article page, the picture of Superman looks very familiar i remember the term hero heritage i i remember seeing that i'm gonna tomorrow i'm gonna go down to my basement and i'm gonna find my old baseball card boxes because they'd be in there with those and i'm gonna dig out and see if i have any superhero comic book 
cards because I know I have some. I just don't know what they are. And now I really got to look. This is the second or third time we've talked about cards, and the, you know, I have to look it up now. I got to go find some stuff. Yeah, you mentioned the hero heritage. The cool thing with that was what they would do is they would take one character and they would say, okay, Superman in the Golden Age, in the Silver Age, and then in the Modern Age, and they would show you what they look like and how they were drawn and then give you their origin as it was presented back in that time and so you could trace the evolution of reboots and post-crisis and everything else and so i thought that was a really interesting way to maximize your uh <laughs> your top characters because there also were a lot of characters i had never heard of oh, you know sure. as i was collecting these cards because i always feel like dc's cast of characters maybe wasn't as recognizable or as flashy as Marvel's because they had so much history behind them. A lot of them were kind of old or weird or, you know, they bought up another publisher's characters and you're like, wait, huh? You know, Phantom Lady. (laughs) You know, this is, again, pre- Harley Quinn and and pre a lot of other characters that have come out in the in the last you know two or three decades. Once you got outside of the top, the top twenty or twenty five characters that everybody would know, there's a lot of obscure DC characters. And I feel like Marvel has a lot of obscure characters too, but oftentimes they were featured as X Men or as some sort of Avengers character, and you would see them pop up a lot more. Whereas DC, you might only see them in like major crossover events. And, and that was the thing that I was bothering about DC, especially in this time period. They'd have a lot of interesting characters that the, that you'd see in events like Crisis on Infinite Earths or other big, you know, story arcs, and you'd see them for a couple of panels. They may not even say a word. There might not even be a thought bubble, and then they're just gone. You're like, who is this character? Where did they come from? And- yeah. So, like I say, this series to me, I collected a lot of because there was a hobby shop that popped up in my town, and so I had been collecting all my Marvel Universe trading cards and was super excited about them. And then I remember walking into this hobby shop, and then I just saw packs of these cards, and I was like, huh? DC has trading cards now? And so I started going in and buying them up all the time, and I. I didn't, you know, get a full set as a kid, but I had quite a few that I started collecting. And I also have a weird memory of this hobby shop seeing these cards and also Spawn issue number one. So, you know, this is just within, you know, a few months, you know, that these were being sold in 92 and Spawn number one comes out in 92 ultimately. So it was kind of a weird connection. But the funniest thing to me is, so now... 25 years later, let's say, I'm living in Phoenix, Arizona, and I go to a Safeway grocery store, and there is a vending machine that has vintage trading cards in it. So like the top half was all vintage sports cards, basketball, baseball, football. And then the second half was all non-sports trading cards. First, what they had was the Marvel Series 3. Mm-hmm. So I just went to every Safeway and bought up all their Marvel Series 3 cards so I could get a full set. And then they started carrying the DC Cosmic cards. So every time I went to the supermarket, I would buy you know, five packs of DC Cosmic cards even got a dark side hologram so like now i have a full set of the dc cosmic cards as well they saw you coming they're like oh good you're getting rid of these <laughs> stupid cars they've been sitting around for 25 years finally how many bucks he got on today the follow-up to this series i did not collect however because it was dc cosmic teams or like 10 cards <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I was like, how many teams do they think they have? But I think, again, it falls into things like, well, there's Blackhawks and there's, you know, like all these like weird old timey teams. Yeah, really. There's like, I mean, there's some really obscure ones that, but they're not that even, who cares? Like, (laughs) they tried. They tried. They're like, Marvel's doing great at this. Well, Marvel's kind of got you beat in being cool. Sorry, DC. You have iconic characters, but only a handful. The nearest safe way to me is in Delaware. I got to go down to Delaware to find these cards. I might just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Marvel versus DC, let's dive into Robin's Reading Rainbow. This week, we have a very interesting crossover event of Batman versus the Incredible Hulk. All right, now this is going to seem strange, I think, to a lot of people, because they may be like, well, that didn't happen in the 90s. It's like, well, not exactly, but here's what the deal is. So there is a listing here in the Picks from the Wizard's Hat in this issue for crossover classics the Marvel DC Collection. And they say here, this is so cool. Wolverine versus Deathstroke, The Terminator, Superman versus The Incredible Hulk, X-Men versus Darkseid, and so on. The trade paperback reprints all the Marvel DC crossovers. Comic books fans' dreams come true. Reprinted here are the following titles, Superman versus Spider-Man, Batman versus The Hulk, and The Teen Titans versus The Uncanny X-Men. And each of these has loads of cross-company characters meeting for the historic first time. Here's hoping this will renew ties between the two publishers giants in comics paving the way for the future crossovers wonder if we'll ever see that george perez justice league of america versus the avengers story sounded cool which we did we eventually got that did get that yes so this is a trade that i picked up this month when it came out uh you know i was in the comic book stores and i saw this cover which is a george perez cover with everybody facing off so you got all the dc characters on one side you got all the marvel characters on the other and it is just an absolutely beautiful cover i'd never seen george perez draw spider-man before his spider-man's pretty great i've not seen this ever reprinted again no I don't know that you'll find this anywhere. Um, it was a, kind of that flash in the pan moment where they, I guess, decided, yeah, let, let's share some of the money instead of fighting over it for the rest of the decade. So for those who don't know, uh, DC and Marvel in the 70s actually did have Spider-Man and Superman meet up not once, but twice. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they had the X-Men team up with the Teen Titans to face a dark side and another resurrected dark phoenix really i don't remember i don't i didn't even know that one wow that's interesting yeah you should find that one it's actually a really cool story because again it's george perez drawing the x-men i mean wow. you don't get better than that also in the middle of all this we have batman versus the incredible hulk <laughs> Which is not the team-up that you would expect. In fact, it's one of those things, uh, just through a a strange serendipity, I guess you would say, is Len Wein, the writer of this particular story, had actually written Batman for a time, and he had written The Incredible Hulk at Marvel. And so they said, well, we want to do another crossover book. How about you write it? Because you know them both very well. He said he jumped at the chance, you know, to do that. So my 
Michael, had you ever heard about this book before we decided to review it on the show today? Yes, I've heard about it. I'd seen the cover. I'd never read it till today. Also, so it's on eBay for 10 bucks, free shipping. Ooh, grab it while you can, yeah, folks. I, I might order it. That's pretty cool. But uh, I'd never read this before. I'm going to touch on the art first. The art, I think, is terrific all the way through. I really, really like the art. It's a little wordy at times and a, and a lot of thought bubbles, but that was kind of traditional for that time as well. But the, the way the Joker is drawn is fantastic. The way the Batman is drawn, and even the whole everybody's really drawn pretty cool. I, I really loved the art. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like we said before, this is, again, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. So, I mean, this is that iconic look of that era, especially the Joker, like you said. I mean, that, that just that giant long chin, oh, yeah. trench coat and everything. Like, I love it. I have a, I have a t-shirt of that head, like that Joker look, and um, that's one of my favorite Batman-related shirts. But next time you tell me we're going to read something, I gotta realize how long this was like 55 pages. This was a long story. This was really. Well, they, they actually refer to it on the title page. A supersized spectacular, breathtakingly brought to you by. So it is. It's supersized for sure. Yeah, it is. It is long. It was a lot of fun. Um, it, it brings some interesting characters into it. At first, they don't call Hulk's alter ego, Bruce Banner, by his name for a while. And I was, I was sitting there, I'm like, I wonder if they weren't allowed to call him Bruce Banner, and then all of a sudden they do. And then there's a later part where you see Bruce Wayne, and they don't call him Bruce Wayne initially, and then eventually they do. And I just connected it now that this is a Bruce and Bruce team up. It, we could have had a Martha moment. We <laughs> Your name is Bruce too? Why yeah, did you say that name? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I think the setup for this is interesting too, because again, you initially you would think, why would you put Batman with the Hulk? It doesn't make sense. And the Hulk did face off against Superman in one of the Spider-Man and Superman stories. Just mm-hmm. briefly, he gets mind controlled. They fight just for a minute, and then the Hulk takes off. But it really makes sense when you think about it, because... The Hulk really doesn't have a DC counterpart. I mean, what, Blockbuster from Batman's Rogues Gallery? I mean, I, I don't know who, like, the super big, buff, uncontrollable rage monster that's a hero in DC would be. Can you think of anybody, Michael? They created one recently um, out of uh, DC Metal. They were the character, it's like Gridlock or something like that. or Yeah, but traditionally, that's just not, yeah. DC hasn't had that powerhouse. So what do you do? Will you pit him against somebody whose brain can defeat him, who's so much smarter than him, and that's what you think? You know, it's like this ideal of human perfection versus this superhuman monster. And that, you know, obviously they do play on that quite a bit, but the basic story of this is that the Joker has teamed up with this alien called the Shaper of Worlds. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Marvel comics he appeared in. I'm going to assume it's some cosmic title like Captain Marvel or something. I almost think it may have been like, it looks like a Fantastic Four character, like a Fantastic yeah. Four villain. But basically, he survives on people's dreams, because he can't dream himself, but he has the ability to make dreams reality, so he comes to Earth, and then he finds the Joker, who's got, like, the craziest, wildest dreams of all, you know? And so, but but he's got some sort of sickness, where he needs gamma radiation to cure him, and all this weird stuff that's going on, so that's why the Hulk gets involved, who has, as Bruce Banner, been working 
on a machine for Wayne Industries that can cure any disease. Is that what your take was? It's a little bit of that. I want to touch on that for a minute. So the whole reason why Bruce Banner is even there is he's created a fake identity so he can get close to a machine that they say might have gamma radiation, and he wanted to see it in action to see if he can fix himself and that's the whole reason why he's actually in gotham city in the first place is he's like he's got a fake identity he had to change his name and hide who he was and get close to possibly figuring out if this thing is real this gun or this ray or whatever they're working on yeah and i find it interesting too yeah that it's this world where marvel and dc characters exist they know about each other they've heard about each other like at one point batman says you know i have a whole file on bruce banner and the hulk in the bat computer i can get for you he's talking to commissioner gordon you know and so we know that like the marvel universe is like 616 universe and that they have a whole list of other 2099 universe whatever and then you have on the dc side you know at least pre-crisis you had you know earth 2 and earth s and earth x and all these other earth and so i would love to know what the official designation for the shared marvel dc universe is so if somebody has that and you want to share that with us on social media at wizards comics i'd love to hear what that is because it's just like they did this whole series of different books so it is an actual separate universe a separate continuity that would be interesting to explore more of but the thing that i find most interesting about this story is that it really revolves around everybody manipulating the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Like, when he's the Hulk, he's kind of dumb, he's kind of like a kid, he's simple-minded, so you can trick him. Like, first of all, the Joker gets him on his side, because he's like, look at us, Hulk, we're two of a kind, see? I've got green hair, just like you. And besides, I've never lied to you, have I? You know, he's just like having a good time with that. And then later on, Batman, he keeps trying to beat the Hulk, and he gets him with gas once, but the second time the hulk's too smart for him is he blows it away with his hand and so batman has to get the hulk on his side he dresses up as an old man it's very frankenstein meeting the blind man in bride of frankenstein and basically he's just like you have to learn to be a friend to people so they won't want to harm you all the time and he tricks him he's like you should trust the joker no 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 don't try to fight him be his friend it's so funny how that all kind of works out in the end because then batman and the joker have to team up i also i kind of thought when 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 batman pretends to be the old man it's like almost like stan Lee. That's what I thought when I first saw it, yeah. Like, it's it's a little bit older than Stan Lee would have been at that time, but it looks like a version of Stan Lee, and I thought that's why they did that. So Batman dresses up a few times. He dresses up like a homeless person, but they, they don't call him Matches Malone, which is his, like, homeless person persona. And what I thought was also pretty cool about this thing is they bring in Clayface to basically capture and hold the Hulk to bring him to the Joker, but they never call him Clayface in the book. I didn't even assume it was Clayface. I just thought, oh, it's a big sticky dough monster is basically what it is. I mean, because he's, he's not the traditional look, so I think you could interpret it as that, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, maybe they just, yeah, we're creating a new creature, because ultimately... 
what it all comes down to is the shaper of worlds. Whatever you imagine, right, he can make reality. So the Joker's deal with him is if I bring you the Hulk, and the Hulk can then help you get cured because something about the radiation that comes off the Hulk made him feel better, basically. Mm -hmm. So he gives Joker unlimited power. And he's, like, you know, changing Batman into this, like, chubby clown. And <laughs> the Hulk, you know, can't hurt him because he puts these boxing gloves on him and stuff. And ultimately what Batman does is he outsmarts the Joker by saying, this is pathetic. You're supposed to be have, like, a twisted mind. And all your stuff is just real basic and goofy. And so the Joker is, like, keeps trying to up himself, you know, one-up himself. And ultimately his brain just kind of burns out. Like, he just can't dream anymore. He can't be as twisted as he wants to be and then that's basically it story over the, the cheaper worlds is like ah there's nothing for me here and he just takes off that that was kind of interesting so when the joker turns batman to the clown type of character it's almost like making an adult sized batmite and that's the way yeah, it, looks. it is you're right this story starts off very standard hero fights the bad guy takes the bad guy down whatever and and then once it becomes this part where just the world guy lets Joker do whatever he wants, it becomes like super manic and it goes all over the place. And you're like, wow, this is like what the Joker's brain would look like. It's really crazy and nuts. And I, I had to like reread a couple of pages a few times. I'm like, wow, this is like hard to follow because so much is going on all of a sudden. And I thought it was really a cool idea because it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we understand that this is not a nineties comic and this is a nineties comics podcast, but that was just such a fun, cool story related to Batman. We wanted to give you that little bonus review here, but also in this issue, you know, we mentioned Valiant earlier and they are happy to announce here Exo Manowar number one from artist Bob Layton and writer Jim Shooter. Now, this is the problem. In the earlier article about Valiant, they had a blurb about all the different comics, right? So they were kind of trying to give you a preview of what Valiant had to offer. And their explanation there for what Exo Manowar is... Past and present combined to create the legend of Exo, another misfit whose life was drastically changed by his surroundings. Imagine a barbarian captured by aliens, suffering nearly a millennium of enslavement and experimentation, finally given the means to escape his captors. The Exo sentient battle armor, designed by aliens for aliens as a war tool against aliens. Imagine now a man whose sense of right and wrong meshed with the world of today and its problems, not to mention his being encased in a suit designed with near-limitless destructive capabilities. That's a mouthful by any standards okay so that's valiant i assume providing copy or at least the person who wrote that particular article had the correct information because in the picks from the wizard's hat announcement it says clothes make the man dangerous and really cool looking too the newest addition to valiant's very impressive comics line the story centers on an alien raised as an animal and trained to be a killer stranded on earth and armed with the deadliest weapon ever created the exo armor suit armor which is alive and can grow any weapon he needs with but a thought he now intends to defend his new home earth from all dangers and he doesn't have to be nice about it either so there i'm like uh-oh. <laughs> Somebody did not read the publicity packet, because they really missed the boat on all of that. So we thought for anybody who was uh, confused, you know, maybe you're reading this issue forward, you never picked up an, a copy of Exo Manowar, that we would give you a review of Exo Manowar number one. Now, Michael, where do you come in on Valiant Comics and Exo Manowar? Well, 
I had never read Exo Manowar until today, and even still, I, I don't know. It's not my thing. Uh, I know previously you have said that you are into sci-fi. You do enjoy a space story. What did you think about this in particular? Let's see. It starts off with him naked on the first page fighting giant spiders ish i don't know i don't know how i feel it's just that it's just not for you I, that's not it. my thing i mean it listen it's the art is pretty cool i, I don't know well it, it, it's an interesting way that they choose to present him because again he's a barbarian he is he's a visigoth so he was abducted by these aliens centuries ago and he's been living there like they say they did experiment on him they did all these things but he's just like this big hulking bearded blonde dude and yeah like you say he's fighting these aliens because as it opens he's trying to escape he's trying to make his way and he he's talking to himself and it's all like kind of broken english in a way you know he's just got a very simple mind the, the way he perceives the world around him is not at all how we would perceive things so he has a map and basically it said go find this chamber where there's a suit of armor with a ring and take the ring and then you'll have the power to defeat these hard skins is what he calls the spider aliens and ultimately he gets the suit on and it is kind of like the symbiote from spider-man mixed with iron man's armor so it's like living metal armor that covers him and it has weapons he could blast the spider aliens you know he refers to it as the good skin he's like oh this is a good skin (laughs) and so he breaks out he blows up their ship and then he goes to earth but now earth is not what he remembers at all you know the earth has changed quite a bit and so he's this naked barbarian wandering through peru and the spider aliens it turns out have already been on earth for years planning an invasion and they have like these corporations and they're all undercover even though they kind of look pretty freakish like you'd notice like their long spindly fingers and mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of misshapen torsos you would think and he teams up with this guy that's on vacation named ken and it turns out ken has been working for the spider aliens so he's kind of turning him in except that ken also he's got a little bit of a crush on eric who is is the inhabitor of the exo armor and so he kind of doesn't want to turn him into the spider aliens even though that's his job and i just remember reading that for the first time being like wow that was just a progressive character there's aren't a lot of gay characters in comics at this time in the 90s i mean you know alpha flight was like famous like oh we have the first gay character and all that but uh ken is like just this you know character who's real resourceful and can help him out and kind of introducing him to the world and i love that eric thinks he's a wizard He's just like, ah, oh, he's one of those wizards that likes men. I don't understand them, but they're good for something. But I, I just thought that was an interesting wrinkle to throw into the story. And ultimately, he does help Eric like get a suit. And then they travel. Eric's ring is speaking to him and telling him, you know, you need to go this direction to find the exo armor where the spider aliens have stolen it from him. And so that's kind of the main action of the first thing is that he's going there to retrieve his armor. Anyway, I think it's a really cinematic setup. It, listen, yeah, artistically, it is very pretty. It's it's well-drawn. The panels are really, really nice. The coloring is good. It's got, you know, some unique beats that you don't see from stories of that era. You know, it's, it's 
if you want to read something that's outside of, you know, DC and Marvel and you want to try a different character, it's definitely something I would probably check out if I can find, you know, a trade for cheap. Maybe I'll, I can, you know, peruse it a little bit. I don't love the armor. It looks weird, especially the helmet on his head. It looks like, you know, when you see people like do barring in a boxing ring and you have the, 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 the foam, you know, on the head. It looks like Shatterstar's headgear with a visor on it. Right. Exactly. And, and I don't dig it. Uh, I think the armor itself looks kind of cool. The helmet just doesn't do it for me. It's also one of those things where it's kind of, it's got cool moments. I, I will admit it's got some cool moments in it. The fact that he's literally naked for about two-thirds of the story is pretty interesting because you don't, again, something you're not going to normally see in a, in a Marvel or DC book that you're going to see the main character walking around basically totally naked for two-thirds of the story. until he... And not Dr. Manhattan naked. Like, they do cover him oh, up yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, from yeah, the waist yeah, down like a he, lot of times. <laughs> they find interesting ways to, like, hide his privates. Like, at one point, he's standing in front of a tree stump, and it's, it's blocking his... <laughs> That's a good way to do it. I like that. You, know, you mentioned finding a trade earlier. That's actually how I discovered Exo Manowar to read. In the early 2000s, there were two comic companies that you could guarantee you were going to find their books in every discount bin. And it was going to be 50% Valiant Comics, and then you were going to have the other 50% was going to be Image. And if you were lucky, there'd be a few like random Marvel or DC books mixed in there that were just not popular titles. But I remember just going to the comic book store and finding the trade that collects like the first five issues of Exo Manowar, and I was like, oh, awesome. Actually even found the Wizard Half comic that was a zero i think they officially called it so like i was able to pick up that and then i just started filling in the rest of the run and so i am a little bit biased which is why i wanted you to read it just to get your take but it is something that i think grows on you over time only because it's very cool to watch eric's character evolve because he goes from this gruff barbarian who can't speak english and over the course of the series he starts getting more and more educated okay you can speak like a normal person now he actually knows these things okay now he can reason oh now he's the head of a corporation he keeps growing and learning and the good skin helps him with that mm-hmm. along the way but he maybe is gonna get more hype i hope when bloodshot does well in theaters everybody buy a ticket to bloodshot so we can get an exo man of war film <laughs> give us your casting ideas for eric if you're an exo fan but speaking of hype now it's time to jump into robin todd's hype machine Well, here we go. Now, this is interesting because, again, this is a DC issue. It's not a Marvel-heavy issue. Talk about Valiant. We're talking about all these other publishers. Image does not exist yet. In this issue, Rob only gets four mentions, but Todd is still beating him out with six. So, I don't know. Todd just, I think, had a little bit more notoriety, and that is going to change dramatically. This is my prediction as we go on. I do believe Rob Liefeld is going to win this race in the end. I don't know for sure, but it just seems that way. The only reason why I think Todd might have been heavier in this issue is because he had drawn Batman a couple times, where I don't think Liefeld ever did. 
that I can think of. No, I think you're right. I mean, Liefeld also did DC work, but he did like Hawk and Dove and like titles that weren't super popular when he was there. So yeah, I mean, he definitely had a little history, but I don't think with Batman. But yeah, so hopefully uh, things turn around for Rob. We'll see. So now we're going to turn the tables on Adam and I'm going to do a little riddle me this. There was a pop quiz that came out in uh, in this issue of Wizard that asks six different questions. And I'm going to see how well Adam can fare on this quiz. Before we get into this, I will mention one thing, and that is, you know, these six questions, uh, like we've done in the past, were to win a signed Wills Portacio Punisher number 10 comic. But this issue actually does introduce a long-running quiz that will exist in the future issues, which is called the CBIQ, or the Comic Book Intelligence Quotient. So we're not going to read it this issue, but probably going forward, this segment will involve a lot more questions from those two-page quizzes. So, the first one's pretty easy. Thor's father. Odin! That's a pretty easy Anthony one. Hopkins? Yeah, right? <laughs> I wish. Monarch's True identity. Okay, so there is a little bit of controversy around this, and I don't know if you know about the Armageddon 2001 history, Michael. I'm going to assume not so much. I'm going to say not so much, yeah. Okay, so originally when Armageddon 2001 was planned, the whole mystery was who is Monarch, right? The whole thing is leading up to trying to find out who Monarch was, this hero that became the greatest villain. And initially... The plan was supposed to be Captain Atom. So Captain Atom, formerly of Charlton Comics that they had absorbed and was actually uh, part of the Justice League Europe team as well that we were mentioning earlier. So anyway, he was supposed to be the monarch, but there was a leak. And so it unfortunately, people figured out that was what was going to happen. And so they decided to change it up which was very weird. And so that's the only reason that I know this, because I was like, oh, I remember the controversy about this. So the last minute they changed it to, and again, Liefeld, we just mentioned this, but Hawk from Hawk and Dove. That was a real random change. People were like, huh? Are you sh- are you sure? Yeah, is, it, is there not enough? Are they looking for the name of Hawk? There's eight, or? There's eight characters, two four-letter words. His name is Hank Hall. Okay, that's there you go. Well, that works. That's that that track. Okay. Four and four. All right, good. Yeah, so Hank Hall then, not Hawk. Not can't keep that basic. This is another really easy one. Most people would know this. I know this one. Mister Miracle's wife. Big Barda. Yeah, that's really easy. <laughs> uh, this is a tricky one. Um, I used to know it. Now I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Lobo's home planet. That's the, that's the one where I'm going to draw a blank, too. Yeah. I didn't read Lobo comics. Do you want to know the answer? I would need the answer. It's Zarnia. Zarnia. How's it spelled? C-Z-A-R-N-I-A. Take that, you fragged bastard. <laughs> Okay, this next one, Jack Monroe. Oh, 
Okay, so tell me how many letters, because I think I know what it is. Okay, it's Bucky. So let me explain. Did Jack Monroe create Bucky, or, or, or wasn't it Jack Kirby? Well, no, no, no. Here's Jack Monroe was Bucky's Bucky. real name. In the 1950s, not James Buchanan Barnes, the original Bucky. So this is another weird thing. In the 50s, Captain America evolved because World War II was over, so he was fighting gangsters and then communists. And so he became a commie smasher, Captain America, for a few issues before his title turned into a horror comic book. This is so random. And so in the Captain America continuity, there was the crazy Captain America who was not Steve Rogers because Steve Rogers, as we know, got frozen in ice and Bucky was killed, right? right. So the question was, well, if that happened during World War II, how was there a Captain America in the 50s for those comics? And so they explained it, that they hired the this other guy to be Captain America and he was a little nuts and then they had Jack Monroe was his Bucky and so he grew up to be in the 90s Nomad. Yeah, I know so maybe that. it's Nomad. I think that's what they're looking for. Yeah, Nomad probably works. Either, either way, they both fit. It's both five letters. Right, and that's why I was not sure but I was like, actually, at the time, because there was a Nomad comic book then that's probably why. So, Which I've always wanted to read and I never have. I need to pick that up eventually because he had a baby he had to take care of I guess kind of like the Mandalorian but he called the baby Bucky is what I understand. <laughs> okay, and the sixth one is Eugene M. Judd. Wow. And I'm, I'm assuming that's an alter ego. It's a four-letter word. I'm just going to go like a random character. Is it Nuke? Eugene M. Judd. Yeah, that's just, that's not an alter ego that stands out to me. When I tell you this name, if you know this, I'm going to hang up on you because I'm going to be... <laughs> oh, of course. See, all the Alpha Flight fans are going to be very upset that I did not know that. <laughs> Puck, everybody's favorite little person superhero. Wow. So you don't, you've never even heard of Puck, then? No, not this one. We were thinking of the real world? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> or Shakespeare. <laughs> the Take real world. Pick. Yes. <laughs> real world, San Francisco or L.A. or whatever they were in the 90s. Yeah, San Francisco, baby. Which, do you know the comic book connection to that? Yeah, of course I do. Judd Winnick. Yeah. Big time. He was a, I, I am, another one of my favorite characters was, was Green Arrow, and I loved his run on Green Arrow. I've read a lot of his books, big time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'll bring this up down the road when Gen 13 finally pops up, but the editor on Gen 13 was on Real World Miami. Really? Yeah, and I remember watching that season and watching her, like, literally, she wore Gen 13 shirts. She would be doing her work at the computer. There would be, like, images on it. And I was just like, whoa, that's awesome. But just like you were thinking about Puck, Michael, it's time for a little bit of what the? Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? So, Michael, I have a question for you, and I know as we brought up this segment, you've kind of wanted us to pull back the curtain a little bit, let our audience get to know us outside of comic books obsession. But I I think I could tie in two sides of your world here that I'm curious to ask you about. Now, I know that you recently got back into the world of long-distance running. I I do, like, 5Ks and and stuff like that, and I want to do a triathlon and stuff like that. But I understand that you have a superhero run coming up. I'm definitely concerned. Considering it, actually, the thing about 5Ks and races nowadays is they—they're becoming like comic cons, where they're coming up with 
versions for everything. And there's one coming up in March, I believe, that's a superhero theme one where you can wear capes or costumes or whatever. And I'm considering doing it. It's not far from where I live. I want to get a few people to go with me because who knows how many people are going to show up and whatever. But it seems like a kind of a fun thing to do. And it's for charity. And and, and I, I like that kind of stuff. I like to do runs that will donate money to something and kind of fun. And I don't do it for competitiveness because it's just for enjoyment but um i do want to do triathlons this summer and a few other things that i i am passionate about so technically if you're doing an iron man that could be comic scene oh. huh? <laughs> if i do an iron man you'll know it because i'll make sure i get a wetsuit that's an iron man looking wetsuit i will i will <laughs> figure out a way to do that for sure well and what are you going to be dressed up as well it definitely wouldn't be the flash because i'm sure not very fast <laughs> I don't know. I do have like Batman Under Armour type stuff. So maybe I'd, I would do Batman or I would do I like Superman for that kind of thing. And uh, one of those kind of characters, maybe I would do Green Lantern because I like I like Green Lantern. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I was imagining when you said, you know, running for charity. Did you do jogathons as a kid in elementary school? Is that something that was people participated in on the East Coast? We we had like jump rope for heart or the hula hoop competitions and stuff like that i would do like relay races and stuff like that i i was not, i could not jump rope to save my life and i could not hula hoop so i would do like <laughs> like relay races or when i was in middle school i was in wrestling and we had to do a push-up contest my family all raised money and i had to do 200 push-ups in 10 minutes and everyone's like there's no way you're doing 200 push-ups in 10 minutes and i did it it was really hard and i couldn't my arms wouldn't work for about three days afterwards but that was something i did as a kid a lot would I, i'm not in good shape anymore but back then i was able to and i was also um, a swimmer in high school and college and i used to do relay races for swimming and 500 meter swims and stuff like that for charity and whatever well i, I applaud you for your uh, mind over matter with your competition but i gotta tell you i think you would have made a lot more money if you were just wrestling a bear <laughs> You know, just like, I, I think that would have been a greater draw, I think it bringing would, a little bit more money. I think it would have, definitely, let me tell you. I'll make a man out of you kind of thing, you know? <laughs> uh, well, what's been on your mind? What I want to know is, and you kind of teased at it a little bit earlier this evening, what is your job? What do you do? <laughs> job. <laughs> Working. That's for chumps. No. So this is interesting, actually, because I had a career. Like I said, I, I was a marketing manager for many years for a, a luxury tile company. And so I did that for a long time, you know, and I have I was in investments for a while, all these types of things. And I've never really been excited about a job, except when I used to work at Disneyland as a costume character, when I worked at KB Toys as a manager, and then seasonally at Toys R Us. Like, those are my happy jobs. It's interesting, in my life, I ended up marrying a doctor who then got a job working on an Indian reservation. They're not called Native American reservations, guys. It's Indian Health Services is the, <laughs> the actual department name. Really? So sorry. But we moved to the Navajo Nation. And so we were living there for a while. Now we're living just in a town adjacent to the Navajo Nation. But I don't work anymore. My wife said, 
I want you to take care of our kids because we're moving to a place where we don't know anybody and there's no child care and there's nothing. So one of us has to stay home. And thanks for all you've done, but I'm the breadwinner here. So <laughs> I was like, well, that's true, dear. Well, hey, don't feel bad. My wife's a lawyer. She's the breadwinner, too. <laughs> Uh, see, that's how it goes. We both found very educated women. Yeah, but that, so my job literally is taking care of the kids. I, you know, I got a, a seven year old, I got a four year old and a one year old now. So I definitely am keeping busy. I, I applaud you because let me tell you. So my job fortunately gives me paternity leave and when my first daughter was born, we had considered, hmm, maybe I should stay home. And now three years later, I realize I could not stay home. This kid would wear me <laughs> out. And, I don't, and now I only have three-year-old and a, a seven-week-old. I don't know if I could do it with, with three kids. I would, oh, man, I'd be, I'd be dead. I'd give you a lot of credit. Well, it helps when you are a big kid. So you can uh, relate to them pretty easily and just mess around. Where I make my fun money to fill my retro room, which is overflowing, <laughs> is I actually do get paid to write movie reviews for popgeeks.net. I also am a featured writer at retrodays.org. And I also have the opportunity to produce a web series with my buddy Tony from retrodays.org called RD's Retro Detention, where I play a high schooler who's a, a little bit Zach Morris. And I have a lot of fun adventures reviewing old retro merchandise, but as if it's basically the early 90s. And so I'm living the era that we're talking about right now all over again. But I get paid for those videos as well. So technically, you know, I get paid to be creative and talk about and write about my obsessions. I did it for free for long enough that people were like, ah, you're pretty good. We'll pay you. Well, you do, you do have an excellent voice for it, and, and you do have the personality, so that makes total sense. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. I was very curious because I'm like, he knows so much stuff, and he does so many cool things. I'm like, what? how does he find the time to do this and manage it? And I, and I get it. You just don't sleep. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up all night. I'm holding the baby. I just read up on old GoBots toys or whatever, you know. Is that kind of why you, you know, wanted to do podcasts as well? Yeah, well, I mean, like, honestly, yeah, when you're at home with a bunch of kids all day, your conversations don't get too far past Paw Patrol or the latest developments in Roblox, which my son loves, you know? So it's video games or cartoons all the time, which I don't mind, but I like to talk about my era. So, yes, then I put together some podcasts, and it gives me the adult interaction that I need on a weekly basis which is pretty great i dig that i i really admire and respect that too i like it that's very cool well that's about it you've gotten the peek into my alter ego this time and we'll dig a little bit deeper into michael's world soon enough oh please go go crazy i'm an open book and adam do you want to talk about what we have coming up yeah so th this is exciting you know as always uh we want to thank the retro network for letting us bring this fun to you a couple times a month and as kind of a thank you to all of you, we're actually putting together a bonus episode right now. You know, we're in 1990, and 30 years ago, a film hit the screen from the comic strip Funny Pages. And so we are actually going to be doing an in-depth drive-in about Dick Tracy. So we're going to tell you all about the behind the scenes. We're going to give you our thoughts on the character's history. So we really hope that you'll join us for that. Going to be out soon. And down the line, we're already 
be planning another bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the 1990 The Flash series starring John Wesley Shipp. A lot of fun to look forward to. We recently tweeted and he commented on which was pretty cool. That was exciting. Next time around, we are going to be getting cosmic because there's Silver Surfer on the cover of issue number five of Wizard from January 1992. And we will be bringing in a guest who knows a little bit about adventures in a galaxy far, far away. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.